Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Binge Boys is the show that keeps you in the know on streaming. I'm Hal Rudnick, and I'm going to be doing some chit-chat with my pal on Harris Lawn. Only took you 70 episodes to come up with a rhyming slogan for our show. Remarkable. You know what? You can teach an old dog new tricks. I'm making it happen. And uh, But that doesn't mean I can't go back to some of my old faves. How's that beard treating you? How's... Uh. Hey, uh, what's a, how's a thing going on that no one can see that's not a comic premise? How's that working out for oh, you? Oh, just, you know uh, what you I know, like to do? Uh, paint a luxurious a, picture with your words. As I know that as an improv teacher, one of the things that you pass on to your students is yes. definitely just throw people prompts with no direction to them whatsoever. Like, what did you do today? Or what's going on with your face? Okay. Um, hey, when was the last time you put conditioner in your beard? <laughs> but it's not okay. You, you get you get what I'm saying. I like beard talk. There's not a comic direction to. This it. is just it's just grooming, and then we're talking about grooming. I think it's interesting. I I, I, I enjoy the beard talk. Believe me, I know it's week after week. It's incessant. Comment below what you think about the beard talk, everybody. I thought we had, we even had, right before the show, yes. we were having an interesting conversation. I was like, Hal, put a pin in that. Let's start the show. I thought we and would get we to that in the pick, news. We can pick this, this conversation right up. And he was like, great, let me start the show. The moment the show starts, it's like, beards! This is a show that's only about beards because my co-host has one. Yes. Tell me about your beard. We're talking about beards again. I mean, I think you're underestimating how much the We've people love hearing. We've driven back into Beard Town. It's a purely audio medium. There's no way anybody can see your beard. They don't even know if you still have a beard. You're not interested in talking about your beard. There's nothing to say about having a beard that people don't already know. But but please, let's let's dive back in. All right, then t- let's talk about something. Let's talk about no, your shirt. I, Tell now, them about your now shirt. Now we're not. Now we're talking about beards. The thing about having a beard is you yes. notice it for a while, and then after you've had it for a while, you really stop noticing it. And so there are things that I will do that I'll be aware, like, oh, there's a lot of hair between me and this pillow. That shouldn't be comfortable. But I'm mm-hmm. so used to it that it, I don't even notice it anymore. So I can let my beard get really long and, like, it, 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 
other people would be very annoyed to have all this hair right around their face. And I'm aware mm. that they would be, but I'm just used to it. So it doesn't matter to me. Nice. And in what point in the beard owning process um, do you get angry and cranky about people asking you about the beard? Like what, wh how long into it does that click it's in? It's by the eighth podcast episode where mm -hmm. your co-host brings it up and you, you run out, you've run out of funny things to say. Long ago, you ran out of funny beard talk because a lot of people, because it's one of those things that's visual that people notice about you right away. As if sure. you were a very tall person, you would mm -hmm. also get, or let's say you went to the Oscars with your nominated husband and because of your alopecia, you'd recently lost all of your hair. It's an oh. obvious visual thing yes. that somebody could pick up on to make fun of, but you probably wouldn't appreciate it that much. Just as an example. Sure, sure. I'm just, if my spouse was at your house right now, I, you might get a slap across the face. That's all I'm saying. For simply bringing up the beard? <laughs> I'm kidding. Obviously, I'm kidding. No one's going to slap pal across the face. Not while I have anything to say about it. Uh, well, I thank you. No one for, slaps that beautiful face but me. Thank you for being the Will Smith to my Jada. Da -da 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 -da. Here's the news. Now the conversation. I on think am I am I the am I the Will Smith to your Jada? I don't I don't know. I, I feel like I'm like the the I'm the Queen Latifah to your Jada. You know, like in a in a set it off type situation. Oh, that's okay. how I see it. Um, I feel like I'm the Tiffany Haddish to your Jada in a. In a girl's, uh, girl's trip. trip. Okay, that, yes. That, honestly, that's a pretty good metaphor. I can see that one. Right on. I can actually see that one. I think we've come back together again. There we are. The news with Lon. Now, Lon. Yeah, no, before the show, we were talking about, because you watched The Girl from Daniel Plainview uh, yes, on Hulu. Yes, The Girl Hulu. from Plainview on Hulu. Uh, <laughs> the the uh, texting about suicide, right. Yes, about Michelle Smart, who texted this uh, young man so much. I can much, promise so I will convince your son to kill himself within 10 days. That is my <laughs> guarantee to you. This is my daughter and partner, L.W. Fanning. That's mine. My impression of that Daniel was very Plainview, nice. That was if he was Michelle Carter, the texting suicide girl. Daniel Plainview and Michelle Carter. There will be blood meets the girl from Plainview. Lon, well done, well Thank played you. there. That was Thank a lovely you. mashup. Uh, a little disturbing, but lovely. Now, <laughs> we were talking about this phenomenon of you know in, I will say in true crime. There's this is not a fresh or brand new thought particularly, but the idea that there's a little bit of profiteering off of tragedy, that are we exploiting, are we taking advantage of the right. subject? Now, that's been a thought in regards to true crime because we've lived in like a golden age of true crime with Oxygen Network and uh, all the other true crime shows from uh, Unsolved Mysteries to uh, Making a Murderer, et cetera. That's become a common enough question that now we've even had a wave of true crime docu-series that sort of challenged the conventional ideas about the genre. Like uh, we were talking recently about Undercurrent, where it was like, yes. shouldn't shouldn't this be about Kim Vall, the journalist, and not about the guy who murdered her or All right. Be Gone in the Dark, where it was like, shouldn't really we be focusing on the author, Michelle McNamara, and not the Golden State those, Killer? Yeah, and I will say those shows did a nice job of uh, positioning the author, positioning right. the woman who was murdered and her, that this person's memory is the most important thing to realize that yeah. was snuffed out or that did not get to 
come to fruition. And then I think what I was saying is, I really feel like the the issue is, the reason it feels so over the top and repetitive and exploitative is that we're really, we've got three, four, five rounds or more of these stories. There's when yeah. it first happens and you've got the dateline or, you know, people are following it daily on the news yes. and on cable news and in the newspaper. Yeah, local news. Oh, I can't, you know, like, when are we going to get the ones for Gabby Petito and Brian right. uh, Laundry? It's just because just as you're saying that, I'm like, this is before the podcast. This is before right. the special. But then you've got the second wave, that. which would be the Texas Monthly article, the long form podcast, the like now a journalist has had a few months to really put all this together and we have the complete story of what happened. So now we yep. have that phase of the story. The New and Yorker, then, the Atlantic think piece. Exactly. And then now we have these additional stages of like, well, now we're making a docu-series, Hulu or Netflix they're doing the three-part docu-series about the texting suicide case or, or the, the fire festival or well there there's the podcast and then there's the docu-series based on the podcast yes. like that's what that's what tiger king was it was there was a podcast there was a texas monthly article then they made tiger king and now we've got carol and joe or joe and carol the peacock yep. then they've got the scripted series so we're talking about these stories hit us in wave after wave and by the third or fourth or fifth version of it we, we kind of all know the story. I mean, we're seeing the same thing, too, with these startup shows. Like, WeWork was, well, first it was a series of articles about WeWork falling apart. Mm -hmm. Then it was this podcast about here's the rise and fall of WeWork, and there was a book, and now there's this scripted show. And it's like, do we real? I, I think that's going to crest, and we're going to see the end of that It, it is really weird, because um, if you, to be a voracious consumer of this content, it's like, it's... It, it's weird. It's like, I've watched all the Michelle Carter stuff. Like, you could say that in the same way that you've watched all of Star Wars or all of the MCU. We're going into the Carterverse, and it's it's a little weird. Like, we don't, and, I don't, we don't need that many very, and I think that that's clear. Like, it's just that there's so many streaming platforms. There's this, they all need content. And so there's these fights going on and every story is getting scooped up multiple times and everybody wants to do everything. And I, I don't think that's going to go on forever. I think this will, this will die down. And I, I was saying, my, my theory is that it's, it's Tiger King. It, Tiger King made people crazy. Like I, I see what you're saying there for sure, because that was a phenomenon, especially when we were at the beginning of lockdown. Also though- Right, and that it was a story that was already out there. So a lot of executives and yeah. a lot of companies had been pitched Tiger King probably over the years and were like, eh, I don't know. There's not that much of a story that whatever. And then Netflix grabs it and it becomes this phenomenon and everybody's like, yeah. crap, every single story like that we should just grab, you know? Additionally, I'll say, like with some of these stories like the Elizabeth Holmes and this uh, story about the girl in Massachusetts uh, pushing her boyfriend to take his own life. They're familiar stories. And I don't know, I don't know if, uh, if it has the same effect as like a familiar IP, the way Hollywood always wants to do, they want, they want the reboot or they want the sequel. This is like, oh, here's that oh, story, course. you know. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you, you said it yourself. Your teeth into. Of course, it, it's definitely that. Because think about it, like when Hulu is like, the Brian Landry story debuting yeah. next week. Like that's a, you, that's a, you know, it's a brand yep. as dark and despicable as that is. It you is. know that story and you know, you're curious about it or not. And they've got, they've got their hooks at you. So of course that's why they're doing yeah, it. Yeah, man. 
It's just, it's very weird. And I mean, we're seeing it too, like uh, Dateline, I brought up Dateline ABC. They are doing this very deliberately where they now have a production house in-house at NBC Universal that's just making shows and films based on stories that have been on Dateline NBC. Wow. Like there's that Renee Zellweger, the thing about Pam, which is on yes. NBC right now, where she mm -hmm. plays this true murderer, Pam Hupp. That mm -hmm. was a Dateline NBC story that wow. they followed, and now they're turning that into a show. And I, you know, I, I just as as hungry as everybody is for those kinds of stories, it is as compelling, darkly compelled as we always are to sort of follow them. Like I don't think there's a market for eight versions of every one. I, I have to feel like at a certain point we're going to get the one definitive take on all of these stories, and that'll be kind of that. The, the yeah. staircase is the one last one I'll bring up before we move into some more news. Yeah. Do you, do you ever watch The Staircase, that classic oh, sure. true crime docuseries? HBO Max has a scripted take on that story coming mm -hmm. out. And I think that's a docuseries that I think everybody who likes true crime by this point has seen. Netflix mm -hmm. came out with some additional episodes a few years ago. We've definitely had our cultural moment where everybody caught up with The Staircase. So it'll be interesting to see are people still interested in Michael Peterson after all this time and want to see Colin Firth's take on it, you know? Right, right. Yeah. And we start to, I, I had watched uh, a couple episodes of The Girl from Plainview and be, and before the show, I was I was just talking to Lon about how it's just, it's a morbid- it's Plainville. I was saying Plainview because Daniel Plainview is that there will be blood character. I was going back and forth on it. The Girl from Plainville is where she's gotcha. from. <laughs> Uh, but uh, either way, it's just so dark and morbid. And I feel like, oh, who's benefiting from this? I mean, there's something salacious and, yeah, just dark about this character, which can be kind of cinematic. But I feel almost, you know, icky watching it. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you know, sometimes it's done really well. It's it's not really my favorite genre. I'll yeah. Anyway, uh, enough of, enough about uh, the, the ickiness of true crime. Alon, what else is in the news? Uh, so we, speaking of things that are icky or that we're tired of by now, uh, we got to talk about that slap. Oscar oh, slap. Slap we, gate. Wow. It, it, with, with, this is the second episode in a row where, where we're dealing week, with slap Only been gate a week fallout. since the slap yes. heard around the world. Slap gate. So Netflix has put a action thriller called Fast and Loose that was going to star Will Smith. That project was moving forward. It's now been put into turnaround. Because but they put Will Smith in timeout. Is that what I'm, is that what I'm supposed to believe? The news media, all, all of the trades and the media as reporting on this have all been making it sound like what you would assume, which is Netflix was like, oh, Will Smith is toxic now. We don't want to be in business. He's with in him. timeout. We're, we're putting that project into route. But that's not really the case. David Leach, the director, uh, you know him from Atomic Blonde. He's credited as the co-director on the first John Wick. He's got that one bullet train coming up with Brad Pitt not too long ago. Oh, sure. Now. That looks fun. He was going to be the director, but he left this project before the Oscars. He walked away from Fast and Loose and jumped on a movie called Fall Guy with Ryan Reynolds that they're making over at Universal. Free Guy, Fall Guy, only one more movie in the Ryan Reynolds Guy trilogy to go. But uh, that was not about the Oscars. That was before the, the, Chris Rock was unslapped at that point. 
Did he leave the project because he was slapped by Will Smith? No, I don't believe so. I don't believe there have been any slap at that point. And is Fall Guy related to the Lee Majors? No, I don't think it's based on the the classic 80s stuntman drama. I don't believe it is based on on Fall Guy. One of my dad's favorite shows when I was growing up, that was always, I have a very early childhood memory of like coming downstairs and like stay, you know, wanting to stay up late and my parents being like, no, it's time for bed. And my dad was on his chair watching TV and it was the opening credits of The Fall Guy. And I always, I always remember that to this day. Oh, I I had the same experience, except uh, my father was uh, watching uh, pornography. Sure. Your hardcore snuff porn. Yes. And I'm, I'm like, time for bed. Little Hal was like, why doesn't that lady have legs? And he was like, Hal, get the hell out of here. And threw a bottle. Uh, You know who's a fan of the fall guy? (laughs) The show. Our friend uh, Rob Schaefer. Rob Schaefer. Oh, of course. Good friend. A good friend of the show. Big fan of the fall guy. You know what? I don't know anything about. I couldn't find anything about this project other than it's at Universal. Ryan Mm -hmm. Reynolds is going to star in it. And now David Leach. Maybe it is based on, I don't want to say it's definitely not based on the 80s show. So Fast and Loose, Netflix already had to scramble now to find a director. Then the Oscars happened. And Mm -hmm. that sort of made Netflix go, well, it's almost like the universe doesn't want us to make this film. Let's just pause. Let's just hit pause. Pause So a lot of people are upset. And there is is news this week that I think is pretty outrageous that they're putting, like they were moving forward with Bad Boys 4, and now they're yes. hitting pause on that. And it's like, are you guys fucking crazy? Do you, like, do you think most people who act in action movies have never slapped anybody? Ever heard of Steven Seagal? Yeah, it's like, is it, is it, are, are we really there? Anyway, I think that, I think that's ridiculous. But that's not really what's happening here. Doesn't it make it, doesn't it make Will Smith that much more of a bad boy? I mean, like a little bit, kind of. That's a, a very Mike Lowry thing to do. A little bit, yeah. Who does Martin Lawrence play in the Bad Boys films? We know Mike Lowry. Obviously, oh. Will Smith. Do you his know partner. the name? His I partner. think I just came up with it. His partner. His partner. It's Marcus Burnett, I believe, is his partner. Wow, good I believe pull. it's good Marcus pull. Burnett. I, whoo, I, man, I will take your word for it. Double, well, I'm going to look, now I'm going to yeah, look it up. Yeah, check it out, check it out. That is some tremendous recall. I. That would be real good if I came up with the name. Yeah, Marcus Burnett and Mike Lowry. They're the partners damn, of the Bad Boys. I damn, damn, very impressive. Very impressive. Yeah, Ooh. seen those movies. Man, like you are, anyway. you are primed and ready for a schmodown appearance. Why doesn't that come up? That's a five pointer in the schmodown. Name both full names of both of the bad boys. I was able to do it like that, son. Oh, Not even a challenge. Bam. They say it a lot. I feel like in Bad Boys Two, especially, they say their names a lot in different. Like that's part of their banter. So anyway, that might be, it might be easier than I'm giving it credit for. You know that that ain't a mistake. That's called branding. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I do. I wanted. I wanted to talk about Fast and Loose for one other reason. I wanted to yes. kind of dispel that. I feel like this would probably have been in turnaround by now. Anyway, but I also think it's a very funny plot because it's not a comedy. It's an action thriller. The plot is Will Smith is going to play a guy, and he has amnesia, but he recovers from his amnesia at the beginning of the movie. And what he realizes is he's recovering from his memory problems. Is that he has been living a double life as both an undercover CIA operative and a wealthy crime lord. Whoa. Like, how can that be? That sounds like a fake, That's it sounds like the fake movie Nicolas Cage is writing an adaptation. 
Like, that doesn't sound like a real movie. That's a Seinfeld movie. It's such a big swing, yes. You get in the car accident, and he he doesn't have insurance, so he becomes your butler. And and that's exactly what it feels like. It feels like to me, it's like, Jerry, you want to go see Fast and Loose? Well, what's it about? Okay, this guy, he's got amnesia, right? Like, it sounds like that, like a sitcom pitch for a, anyway. uh, It's out there. We'll see if that ever comes to pass. Fast and Loose right now does not look like it's uh, moving forward at Netflix. Moving on, Apple. We're going to talk about Apple TV Plus for a bit. They snagged a huge name, Harrison Ford, signed on for his first ever TV regular role. He's going to co-star. And his last. And his last. How dare I? We don't know that. He could become a TV man. Like Harrison Ford's wackiest air crashes could be the next hot show. You don't know. Just, it's possible. Him, uh, that's, oh, him that's landing Cessnas on various strips of if, road. You if know. that's not on true TV, then true TV <laughs> is. What a pitch. Uh, uh, anyway, really this slick. is fascinating to me. He, other than shows where he's like, you know, documentaries that he's appeared as himself, the last time Harrison Ford acted in a TV show was the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. He just doesn't Whoa. ever do TV. Somehow Tim Apple uh, got him over there. So there you go. the series is called Shrinking. It comes from, uh, remember the end of the tour, writer-director James Ponsolt and star Jason Siegel. Mm. Uh, they, worked, they worked together on the end of the tour, that movie about David Foster Wallace yes. on his last book yes. tour. They're collaborating on this one. Jason Siegel is going to play a grieving therapist who decides to start telling his patients what he really thinks about them and, and their problems. Oh, there you go. He's letting it all hang out. And uh, Ford is going to play his mentor, a famed, and I'm quoting here, blue-collar shrink. I don't know if that means he's blue-collar or his clientele is blue-collar or both, but that's what it says. Got a blue-collar shrink. Okay. It could mean he's very, like, folksy and rural, like, well, shucks, I got, I think I got just the right benzodiazepine for you, Sonny. Like, it could mean that. (laughs) But it could also mean he's, you know, a normal shrink, but he only, he specializes in, like, people with overalls with, like, long grass seeds coming out of their mouth. Oh, yeah. No, he 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 deals with, uh, you know, Joe Lunchbox, the salt of the earth. It's yeah. It's just like if you're feeling a lot of ennui about slopping the hogs, he's your man. Oh, I got the perfect shrink for you. He, he like he the Fisher, the Fisherman family from Coda. This would be their therapy. Sure, sure. But if uh, if 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 you are a lawyer or let's say you uh, work at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital, then you're going to want to go see the white collar shrink. I get it. I like. I think he he doesn't even consider those people's problems real. Like, get out of my office. You don't have a real problem. Oh, that's a good Harrison Ford right there. It's a good oh, Ford. Accountant, you're, you're full of shit. I have my finger up. You can't see it, but I'm doing the point. Oh yeah. Get out of my office. Get off my Just plane. Just imagine me. Imagine me pointing like I'm saying, "Get off my plane." Yes. Uh, or you switch the samples like that. that, that. Oh, you is know, that from the fugitive? You know, Devlin McGregor. Oh yeah, pal? from the fugitive. Sure. Yeah. That's from, that's from the Apple also, we're going to stay on Apple. They grabbed the film project Project Artemis. This is going to star Chris Evans and Scarlett Johansson. Oh, Jason the, Bateman attached to direct this. Oh, the Cap and Black Widow are back. This back. is a prequel to Endgame, yes? No, we don't know. Well, we don't know. Maybe. I don't think so, because it's not Disney, it's Apple. So oh, probably so it's that probably not Disney. an MCU? They're, they're not playing. Probably they're... just those two actors and not 
within the Marvel universe. Oh, but I don't know. Oh, we don't right. have any plot details. All we know is Deadline says the film is, and I quote, set against the space race. So I'm assuming 50s, 60s. 50s, 60s, you're Sputniks. You're, yes. Sputniks. Cosmonauts. You know. Sure. Yeah, something, something like that. Oh yes, yes. Uh, the the, uh, the Black Widow is Russian cosmonaut, and uh, Captain America is American astronaut, and together. They fall in love. Where are you going with this? Yes, they fall in <laughs> love, and in uh, space. Let's just say uh, he docks at her space station. If you yeah, know what I'm yeah. saying. Oh, oh my I'm talking about a little. <laughs> The first uh, sex scene ever filmed in space will be for this for this movie. A zero gravity. Tom Cruise went up to space to film his movie, but that guy doesn't fuck. Come on. So they had to send Scar Joe and Chris Evans up to be like, let's get this done. We need outer space P and V. Cruise mm -hmm. isn't making it work. You know, who knows what that guy's into? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, Cruise, he's uh we, we know he likes to wrestle in hotel rooms. We get, he did P and W. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what that stands for. <laughs> uh, I did want to, I, I play this little game. This is a hundred plus million dollar project. Chris Evans, Scar Joe, Jason oh, yeah. Bateman, Space. So you look at that and then it was a first time writer, Rose Gilroy came up with this script. And I'm always like, that. That's odd. I mean, you would, that's a huge gamble to take on a first-time writer. How did she get in the room? Oh, yeah, because you'd want to give it to uh, a, uh, a, a, a well-traveled scribe one Well, no, think. I'm not saying give it. I mean, this was somebody who got in at Apple and was like, here's my big idea. Let's get Chris Evans. I, I always wonder, like, how did that person get in that room to sure. make that pitch? No matter how good I, your idea is, you got to get in the room. Uh, huge shock. I hope everybody is sitting down. Rose Gilroy is the daughter of Nightcrawler writer-director Dan Gilroy and actress Renee Russo. So there it if is. If you're wondering how she got into the room, she uh, called her dad. And there said, it dad, is. Get me into this room. There's a room I'd like to go to and pitch my space race drama for Chris Evans. Hold on, sweetheart. Let father make a phone call. I wouldn't have even thought the Nightcrawler director had that kind of juice, but here we are. I oh, guess I mean, listen. Shows you what I know. Listen, he's he's married to uh, Odin's wife. Frigga. You could just say Frigga. We all know who Frigga is here. Listen, I don't remember the names of these characters the, the same way you it's do. It's Marcus Burnett. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, she's not a Marvel character. That's from, that's from Norse mythology, man. That's like the name of Odin's actual wife. Yes, but also in the Marvel universe. Also in the, but that's just Stan Lee just was not feeling very creative that week. I mean, if like, geez, my head is killing me. What, what, what other mythology can we steal? Ditko, <laughs> Ditko, get me that Norse mythology book. Look at this, Loki. Yeah, there, there, there's probably like he, he passed away before they got to exploit Mayan culture. Yeah, uh, he would have just <laughs> gone gone down a. This new superhero is a Tin Man, and his best friend is a Scarecrow. <laughs> I love, I do love, uh, and I, I don't mean this in a mean way. I genuinely love those guys and, and those old school comic books. I don't mean to. Oh them, yeah, but it it is hilarious to me that those guys like Stan Lee and Kirby and Ditko and all those all those crazy all those geniuses from the early days, mm -hmm. Marvel or whatever, DC even as well. 
they were they weren't really treating this stuff with like the reverence we do today. They were knocking out like eight of these stories and then grabbing a uh, you know uh, corned beef on rock. Oh, I like, thought you were going to say grabbing a secretary. No, how dare you? I would never. But I uh, mean, I've seen I, Mad Men. I mean, listen, I'm sure there were shenanigans. It was a long time ago, but no, I I just meant like. They were they were working at this breakneck pace, just desperate to get these pages out. And it was like, you know, quick work. It's like, knock these out. Like, let's keep going. And that's why so many of the stories are like, they're formulas and they're kind of similar. Sure. Because like the they were just cranking them out. But today we're like, uh, you know, it's every detail has to be just right. Like that will, Aunt May would never do that. You know, like we're so reverent with them now. Yeah, no, today the vitriol is, fuck you, you destroyed my childhood. Yeah, they're like uh, holy texts. Death like, what, you got That's that's not the color of Namor's boots, you son of a bitch. And it's like, those guys were like, well, I don't know, it's blue now. Who gives a shit? I got 18 pages to get done by 4 p.m. Yeah, meanwhile, back in the day, they would get off work and it'd be like Madison Cawthorn partying with the Republicans, cocaine, orgies, you name yeah. it. Just Stanley doing tons of blow until the day he died. If you take one thing away from this podcast today, folks... Let it be that Stanley was just a massive coke fiend well into his 90s. That's that's true information. You can hear more about that behind our Patreon wall. <laughs> just which celebrities we've done blow with. That's our entire Patreon content, really, at this point. Oh, man. You, like, you never know what's going to go down uh, behind uh, the convention center in San Diego. I'll be honest. It's mostly Jesse Comic- Camp stories. It's mostly, mostly Jesse Camp. Mostly like former 90% VJ <laughs> MTV wannabe Camp. a VJ winner Jesse Camp, but... I did. I I did hang out with him one time at Jumbo's Clown Room in Hollywood. How That's about that? That's a true story. I ran into and uh, recognized Jesse Camp. And Jesse Camp, very excited to be recognized. Uh, let me tell you. Let's move on. Yeah, Catherine Bigelow. We you remember her Oscar-winning director, Catherine Bigelow? Kurt she Locker. hasn't made a film. She hasn't made a film in five years since 2017's Detroit. Uh, mm-hmm. She's back. She's coming back for Netflix. She's going to direct a film adaptation of the upcoming novel, Aurora. Now, this comes from writer David Kep, who you may remember he wrote Kimmy, the Steven Soderbergh movie we watched earlier this year with Zoe Kravitz. Thought it was delightful. He also wrote the first Jurassic Park film and the first Mission Impossible film. Ooh. This is his novel. He's adapting the novel himself for Catherine Bigelow. It is about... Uh, there's a series of solar storms. They wipe out the world's power grid. And so, you know, civilization starts to crumble. No power. This divorced mom tries to get her kid safely to this desert bunker that her wealthy brother owns. So she's like, you know, it's one of those we got to get out of the city before everything collapses. It sounds like you're exactly describing either John Cusack in 2012 or Gerard Butler's Geostorm. Well, the other thing I was going to say, I think this is really interesting. Uh, there is a David Kep film that he wrote and directed from the late 90s called The Trigger Effect with Elizabeth Shue. Mm-hmm. Do you happen to recall this film? I don't. I don't. It was a small budget thing. Sort of came and went. I saw it. Elizabeth Shue plays a woman and there is a global blackout that lasts several days that causes civilization to start to crumble. And she flees out of the big city and ends up staying at this house with these two other guys. But then it becomes like, oh, I don't know if I can trust these two guys I'm staying with. 
what if uh, what if one of them is like uh, gonna do a murder or whatever? Yeah. So it becomes this like suspense thriller. But anyway, it's kind of it's a very similar kind of Ooh. premise. He's mm-hmm, he's mm-hmm. clearly fascinated by this idea, and then of course Jurassic Park is also he didn't come up with that the Michael Crichton Mike story, Crichton, but yeah. it's also power goes down and with all the power out, chaos reigns. And this is obviously an idea that's very potent for David Kep, that, that the lights are the only thing keeping us from chaos. He was in a blackout as a child. Yeah, and- there's like something, there's something going on here. Grandmother, where are you? Are you okay? Like Hurricane Heist. You ever see Hurricane Heist? Oh my God. We should watch that for this pie. It's not current. Oh, it was I, just yeah, watch it because it's hilarious. I don't think I've seen it. I, I'm it's aware great, of but it. It, there's a there's a traumatic. It's one of those movies where you know they got to face down a deadly storm at the end. So of sure. course it opens with a flashback to the main guy as a kid, oh. and he was in a traumatic hurricane as a child, and he's in the cellar, and they, I believe the hurricane like sucks up his mom or his dad, like they're dead, and then he looks, and in the storm, the storm has like a skull face, like yeah, I'm an evil hurricane. Oh no. Oh. Amazing! It's super funny. It's really. Oh funny. boy! I mean, because you for a moment you're like, wait, is it? Is this? Is this movie about a haunted? It's not. This is not a supernatural. It's not a supernatural movie. It's. It's not a ghost storm. It's, it's not just an a hurricane. evil hur- It's not an evil hurricane. No. Well, it. I mean, is, it is, is like the devil, it blatantly the de- is. Is the devil live in that hurricane? There's no story explanation for it. It just happens to be a hurricane that acts. When very he was evil. a kid, was he at his highest point, and then the devil came for him, as Denzel Washington <laughs> told Will Smith. But the first quote came out, and it was like, right after this happened, Denzel pulled Will Smith aside and had some words of wisdom about the devil. I just assumed, me- metaphorically, I mean, he means he means your baser instincts. Yes. He means the devil that lives within us all, yes. folks. Yes. I assumed that's what Denzel Washington meant. But then uh, a few days later, he was at a Bishop T.D. Jakes conference and he gave a whole speech about the devil and the ways. That, and it's like, oh, no, he, he he's literal. He means the literal devil. The literal, like, like horns and a tail and a pitchfork. Yeah, like he yeah. means like the like pitchfork, like, I'm the devil. Like, you should do a bad thing because I like evil. <laughs> ah, yes. C- cross the river sticks and come to a, a I, eternity of damnation. But here's yeah. my question. Mm-hmm. If the devil wants you to do evil, just loves evil for its own sake. Yes. Why would he then punish you for doing evil? He, he likes it. God should punish you for doing evil. He's the evil hater. The devil, you would think, would throw you a party. The devil probably is throwing the party. No, when you go to hell, you're suffering for all eternity. You're not getting, oh. it's not a party. Well, the, no, the party's on earth. Like, you do the evil, and it's like, ooh, I'm living it up. I don't give a but shit. But don't you see, the idea is like, the devil is That's like, the, the devil needs to do, do that evil to control while you're on earth you. And- and He's trick tricking you. you. Yes, but I still don't get his his motivation. Because if you do the if you do the evil, then you're his. If you rebuke, but what does he get out of that? Souls, souls. Don't you remember? Uh, uh, what's that? Uh, like he's hungry. I mean, Matt, what's the, listen, tea, I what's the uh, teacup it's show cup, we watch? You're thinking of Cuphead. Cuphead. And yes, we all know in cartoons the devil just wants to amass souls. I'm just saying people really believe. There's not life is not. 
Denzel Washington does not believe in the cuphead devil. He believes in an actual devil that's like scheming to get your soul. And I'm like, I don't get it. I feel like if there was a devil in hell and he was watching us and he loved evil, he would be like our biggest, he would be evil people's biggest fans. He wouldn't want to trick them. Oh, but sure. But then heaven he and hell. would want to give them a waffle party. But then in, sure, sure. A la severance. But in uh, we'll, we'll talk more that about that. Everybody. Yes, thank uh, you, thank you, Al. Of course, but the the, the then that Al, dynamic explain, that explain. dynamic wouldn't wouldn't work because heaven is supposed to be the good place, hell is supposed to be yeah. the bad place. And explain if you're having a party, Christian tautology to me on today's podcast, Al. Would you please listen? I'll 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 talk in any direction uh, you want to go down. Believe me, I know you will. Yes, yes. <laughs> Even if it's anyway, beards. those are my quick thoughts on the devil, folks. Yep, yep. <laughs> Uh, you have anything more to say about Aurora, Catherine Bigelow, David No, Kepp, but I would like to talk about the concept of evil. No, I'm done with that. Okay. All right, one more thing. One more thing about the concept of evil. Oh, no, no, I was just, I was just fooling around. Okay, good. Yeah. Well, good, because we're, now we're on to supermodel Bella Hadid. So it Ooh, all comes Ooh, man, that makes me want to do some evil Ooh, when she's walking down those catwalks. No, I meant she was evil. I just presume that she, like all attractive people, is evil. Oh, That's yes. That's just my baseline. Yeah, all, all chads, all, yeah. uh, what, what do you call <laughs> oh, an attractive you were, woman? You were, <laughs> how was listing things out on his fingers, like all, like one But it looked like he was just pointing at himself. Like all oh, chads, yeah. like this good-looking son of a oh, bitch sure, right here. Oh, sure, sure, yeah. Um, I, 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 wish, I wish you knew me in high school and elementary school. Anyway, Bella Hadid, she's joining the cast of Hulu's Rami for its upcoming third season. We don't have any, no information about who she's playing, whatever, what she's doing. It's her very, very first acting gig. She's mm -hmm. exclusively known for her her modeling as opposed to her acting. Yes, her and her famous family, her father... Uh, a, a real estate developer here in Los Angeles who had a uh, a real fool's errand of a project that he dumped millions and millions yes, of, of dollars into and then it got repossessed by the bank. It's like that that the top of the mountain thing yes, in Beverly Hills. Yes. yes, I read about yeah, that. Yeah, he, he wanted to make this insane house and structure on top of a mountain and the biggest lookout point in Beverly Hills. It is, I believe it, they said land-wise, not the, the, not the yeah. building. Just the plot, it's like one of the most expensive plots in all of Los Angeles. Like one of the crown jewels of L.A. real estate. But right incredibly there. hard to build on because you're dealing with like it's land. On that, it's on top of a mountain. So anyway, uh, and and she of anyway. her famous sister, uh, Gigi Haddad. Gigi Hadid. Hadid. Uh, so anyway, the show stars Rami Youssef as a first-generation Egyptian-American living in New Jersey, Balancing his his Muslim faith, everyday life in 2022. Mm -hmm. Hadid, she can currently be seen on the April cover of Vogue. She also owns. I I I got. I really went down the rabbit hole today on this. Sure. She owns a company called Kin Euphorics. And I oh. was like, what is a euphoric? I don't understand what they sell. So I looked it up, and there it says they're an alcohol-free. Spirit company. Again, I'm intrigued. But spirit <laughs> means alcohol. Yes. How could you be? Uh, does okay. it get you fucked up or not, Bella? That's yes. my question. Here, so I, I, I dug in. It does not get you fucked up. Folks, if you take one more thing from today's podcast, these kin euphoric drinks, they're not going to get you fucked up. These are, these are supplements. These are 
It's like a uh, bottled liquid health supplement, but they're they're flavored to taste like mocktails. Gotcha. So it's like the idea is like you, you fantasize that you're drinking a cocktail, but you're actually drinking something that's gonna like boost your brain power, like probiotic something. Mm-hmm. Or one of them says that it's going to help you reach a natural circadian rhythm, which like, I don't think it's going to. Oh, your proper sleep rhythms. But it's fun to pretend. Uh, so that's what, that's, she is the co-founder of Kin Euphoric, Spella Hadid. Congratulations to her. Uh, good for you, virgin cocktail. So it's like a, it's like a, a Shirley Temple with a little bit of wheatgrass in it. Well, that's exactly, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. I'm really looking forward to like her in Elizabeth Hobbs mode. Like, this is a real step forward for Kin Euphorics. Deepening her voice and wearing turtlenecks. We've, we're, uh, we've now got herpes in all of our drinks. <laughs> Bella Hadid, formerly linked to The Weeknd. This wow. is true, yes. Yes. Mm, yeah. There you go, that's not, just a fun not fact. The, not the two days out of the week when you get to the, the, the singer of the weekend. Exactly. We're all, we've all been previously linked to the weekend. Who hasn't enjoyed a weekend? Uh, everybody's working for the weekend. Uh, he means he means the, 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 the singer-songwriter. Yes, when I say that. Blood, the, of, of blinding lights fame. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's move on. NBC Universal and WWE, they're going to team for the scripted drama series Pinned. This is described as an upstairs, downstairs soap opera. That's not me making that. That's WWE released that description, folks. Uh, oh. Set in a fictional WWE-inspired wrestling league. My my view is it's like, you, you know, like Ballers or The Game or those oh, kind yeah. of shows where so, it's like uh, the glamorous behind-the-scenes of the sports league. This is that, but for pro wrestling. Right, so NBC and WWE, it's the cock meets the rock, huh? They're... a big ongoing strategic partnership that we are seeing unfold in real time. And mm-hmm. it seems to be working very well. I mean, we just saw WrestleMania weekend was this past weekend. And now for the first time in my lifetime, you could just, you don't have to like do a special pay-per-view, get all your friends, pay $60 to get the, it's just streaming on Peacock now. Like you can just turn it on. It's the first time I've really ever gotten to see any of these big wrestling pay-per-view oh, yeah, specials. I used to order them all the time when I was Because a kid. I never wanted to, I was never a big, I always like, wrestling was always like, I thought it seemed fun and I would I would have been willing to check it out, but it was always a financial barrier. It was like, I'm not gonna pay sure, 60 sure. bucks to check this out. What if I think it's stupid? So this has really been interesting to sort of, I finally get to just watch them or flip them on because it doesn't have to be this huge commitment because now they're just streaming on Peacock. So Peacock gets all this, you know, this huge audience that may not have cared about, you know, Girls 5 Eva, Mm -hmm. but is going to sign up just to watch all their wrestling. And WWE gets this, you know, all these new eyeballs that would have never gotten to experience all this content before can see if they think it's interesting. And, you know, like, I'm sure there's a lot of people who will check this out and get into it. Wrestling converts. Yeah, and like, oh, well, they, okay. You know, gonna... it's funny that uh, you call it a soap opera because, or that they called it I a didn't. soap they opera. They called it that. You know, they because often I've heard wrestling referred to as a soap opera for guys. Because I think the, it does have that. Yeah, it does the story. Yeah, the storylines, or and not just. For, I know there are plenty of uh, female wrestling fans as well, but. Uh, yeah, it is a li- but it is a little bit of a more of a machismo soap opera. It's it's not necessarily gender. To me, what it is is the traditional soap opera 
the drama is about romance and relationships. Who yes. loves who, who betrayed who, who's cheating on who, yeah. who murdered who in passion. And wrestling just takes all these same ideas and it's, it's really, it's the ongoing nature of it. It's like, just like a soap opera, you're never resolving these plot lines, you're just further complicating them. The mm -hmm. characters run through years and it's the same in wrestling. You can't, you're never gonna end the rivalry until one of the guys retires. You just have to figure out ways to like deepen and make them more complex. The only difference is that WWE switches it over to, it's it's a competition, it's sports instead of romance. It's like, um, who's gonna beat who? Who's gonna team up with who? Who's got a rivalry with who? It's the same dynamics and tropes. Uh, unless it's a situation like Macho Man Randy Savage and Ms. Elizabeth and then Hulk Hogan. But that's exactly, I mean, in the same way that you can imagine a soap opera that could have a plot line about some kind of rivalry or competition or even sports, like, you know, there are that stuff in sports, in soap operas. You can have a romance storyline. There, It's that interchangeable, I really do think. Like, it's, it is similar kinds of writing in some ways. Or that one time that Vince McMahon had sex with Triple H. Well, I, I, there was, I, there, when I used to work at a video store, one of the guys, one of the regulars who would come in all the time wrote for WWE. Right. Wow. And would lift ideas and stuff from genre movies and whatever all the time. And it is, a, a lot of it is really the same ideas, the same like that you do writing on a TV show. It's, mm -hmm. these, these are characters. They all have personas. They all have motivation. They all have hopes and dreams and wants. And you're just, okay, well, this season, what's their goal and what's their obstacle and what are they going to, you know, it's the same kind of drama. Absolutely. So it does make Absolutely. some kind of sense then. Yeah. Now, this is one of two scripted shows that WWE is working on right now. They're also working on the United States versus Vince McMahon. That's about the true story of the 90s when the U.S. government was investigating uh, McMahon and at that time WWF for... Uh, allegedly giving wrestlers steroids during oh. the, the anabolic steroid craze of the 80s and 90s. Oh, sure. Uh, it's, it's interesting because how much of a truthful depiction are you going to get when oh, it's produced because, by WWE? Yeah, no. Both of these shows are like Vince McMahon is an executive producer yeah. on both of these shows. So you're not going to get the truth. You're gonna yeah, you're not going to get the truth of like, commodified wrestlers who are putting their bodies on the line every week and receiving just injuries, concussions. Oh my God, the damage that's it's done It's still to real to me, damn it. <laughs> uh, there is no Santa Claus. And if you want the the good stuff, Dark Side of the Ring. Right, I was gonna say, the Vice Series Dark Side of the Ring is, is that's the, uh, you know, that's the, that's the unaltered raw version, the, yeah. the you know, unauthorized. But, uh, you know, hopefully- This is gonna they, be a very sanitized and, uh, you know, authorized. Absolutely, version. but hopefully they're able to have fun with it. Uh, upstairs, downstairs, the, the writers and the matchmakers and then the wrestlers and the talent. Yeah. I feel like the United States versus Vince McMahon one, they're probably going to aim for like the Larry Flint movie. That's the tone I'd go for, where it's mm -hmm. like conceding that Vince McMahon, a bit of an anti-hero figure. I yes. don't think it'll be making him look angelic or saintly. Mm -hmm. I think they'll be conceding that, look, this isn't a guy who's going to appeal to everybody, <laughs> but he happened to be right in this particular situation. 
And that's what happened. Like, he was eventually cleared of those charges. That's why they're making the show. There you go. He did not go to jail for giving records. Yeah, uh, one thing's for certain. They're not going to vilify Vince McMahon. No, they're not going to. It would make him, like, charm, like a bad boy, quote-unquote. Yep. Uh, Last news item before we move on to some reviews, Hal. Netflix has announced plans to reboot the Spy Kids franchise along with its original creator, filmmaker Robert Rodriguez. This is a brand new project, so I don't think we're going to get Carla Gugino or Antonio Banderas or the original kids. I believe this is going to be a total reimagining. The original Spy Kids films together brought in over $550 million at the global box office, Hal. Big money. It's a nice chunk of change. Is... uh did Robert Rodriguez also direct Shark Boy and Lava Girl? Sure, of course. I believe, I believe Shark Boy and Lava Girl and Spy Kids take place in the same fictional universe. Gotcha. I don't believe they're not, they're, it's not, they're not directly connected, but I believe there are, the implication is because last year he did that movie, I believe it was called We Are Heroes. Do you remember this? No, no, which one was that? This was another Robert Rodriguez film for Netflix, and it was about a bunch of kids who their parents are superheroes who get kidnapped, and then all the kids have to get together and become the new superheroes. And that, I believe, was also in the Spy Kids and the Shark Boy and Lava Girl universe. Gotcha. So that's my thinking is we're talking now Spy Kids is a setting, and all these individual films will spin off in their own direction. Aha. I haven't seen a single one of these movies. I mean, here's the thing. I'm aged out. I'm aged out. Rodriguez was at the very cutting edge. He was on the cusp of what now we take for granted, which is get a warehouse in Burbank, cover the screens with green, and then you can dump your actors in there and you can project whatever the fuck you want behind them and make the movie (laughs) for cheap in a computer. No, really. That was how Robert Rodriguez Uh was doing this shit in the early days. Like Sin City 2 was was that way. And... uh, he was like the one of the main guys who was originally doing that, and that's how he was able to make these Spy Kids movies, and he was doing these huge-scale adventures, but for like one-fourth the cost of the traditional Hollywood movies because they were going to real locations and building practical things, and he was just like, no, no, put the kids in a little green box, and then you just put them in the, the robot, you know? There you go. Uh, so going back now, those movies have a very distinctive, I think you would probably say, gross, ugly look. It's very like early aughts mm-hmm. where it's like that that old school CGI that doesn't even look remotely real. It looks very like shiny and cartoonish. And But at the time, it was legitimately pretty groundbreaking. That's what I'll say about the Spike. You know, sounds like it was uh, groundbreaking for the studio's pocketbook. Hey-oh! Well, yeah. I mean, but that's always been Robert Rodriguez's thing is like, it's not just... I'm going to bring you, like, the world-class action. It's like, I know how to do this for, like, one twenty On a shoestring budget from his guys. very right. first movie. I'm gonna, right. I'm going to make El Mariachi with, like, 20 grand or something, right? Exactly. Boom. And that launched him into the directing stratosphere. Boba Fett. Coming up. Boba Fett. <laughs> uh, we are going to talk about... We're not going to talk... We don't talk about Bruno. It's a little Oscars... My God, how do you stay up with the news like that? Right? Relevant. (laughs) But we are going to talk about Moon Knight. Juan, you know, Encanto is on Disney Plus. You know what else is on Disney Plus? Moon Knight. And Oscar Isaac is the titular Moon Knight. 
The first episode has dropped. I think we've both watched only that. And, you know, I you know, I really like Ethan Hawke's character in this. I, I like, I, I really like the evolution of <laughs> Ethan Hawke playing only grizzled guys now. And he's good at it. Like, I didn't, I a few years ago, I wouldn't have thought Ethan Hawke was going to be a go-to Hollywood grizzled guy. But I really, I like his character a lot. Like, I could watch a whole series about this dark, weird, uh, would-be cult leader guru. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, it, this was hard for me. This was, this was legitimately sure. hard for me because I know th- it's rare. It's rare that you'll hear me say this. But mm-hmm. I actually know the comic book origin. I've read a lot of Moon Knight comics. I like mm. Moon Knight. When I was a kid... Right after Batman came out, the 1989 Batman, I got I got really into Batman. Like I'd never, sure. I didn't really know much about comics at all until that point. Comic strips, but not comic books like superheroes. Right. Uh, and then I saw that Tim Burton Batman, and I went, you know, obviously I went ape shit for it. I was like 10 years old. Oh I thought yeah, it was like the greatest thing I'd ever seen. Absolutely so phenomenal. I started buying and reading a lot of Batman comic books and getting into Batman, and then a few years after that. I heard people saying, oh, you know what? Marvel, they've got this character, Moon Knight, kind of like their Batman. So I was like, oh, if there's more Batman-type comics, I want to read those. So I, I, I started checking out Moon Knight. And this show is not really anything like any Moon Knight comic, at least, that I've read. So it was a big, I had to do a big adjustment in real time where I was like, oh, okay, this is something else that they're taking inspiration from Moon Knight, but it was not what I had been thinking the show was going to be. So, and it's only been one episode. Yeah. So it's very hard to know, is this going to settle back into a Moon Knight show or is this going to be this weird thing where Ethan Hawke is this like creepy cult guy and he's chasing Oscar Isaac, who is very confused and thinks he's a museum gift shop owner and doesn't realize that he's a mercenary and superhero. Right. Uh, I don't. I don't know. It's it's hard. It's it's really hard at this point to say. I feel like if the entire show is what this episode is, yes, I'm gonna be a little disappointed because it's just like sure, like it just feels a little like you could do this with anybody. I bet he's gonna get more comfortable with the persona and he's gonna adjust. You know, uh, uh, Oscar Isaac, as Lon was saying, he's this mild mannered, unassuming. He's a works at a museum gift shop. And he's prone to sleepwalking and going on these excursions and he doesn't know what's happening with him. And he, it turns out there's a double life happening when this, this superhero mercenary, whatever Moon Knight is, can take over, take control of Oscar Isaac's body. Yeah. So, so this, this whole episode, we're like flashing in and out. Like he, Mm -hmm. We only see it from the perspective of this one. What, what I know and what Hal is dodging around saying specifically is the, the show is about a guy who's got dis- disassociative identity disorder. Sure. It's, it's a guy, Mark Spector, a mercenary, is his main personality. Mark Spector believes, and it, it appears in the show, in the reality of this show to be true, that he's also possessed by the spirit of the ancient Egyptian god Khonshu. 
Mm-hmm. It's the voice of F. Murray Abraham, by the way. I oh, yes. recognize that. Uh, so he hears this loud booming voice, which is the god Conchu, but Mark Spector, the mercenary human, that's the primary personality. But this whole episode, we are exclusively seeing the action from the perspective of another one of Mark's personalities, which is this guy who thinks he's an English museum curator or museum tour, museum gift shop guy named yeah. Stephen Grant. And it's a weird, it's like a, doing the show this way makes it a comedy because Stephen Grant is a fish out of water. Like he's not, he doesn't belong in any of these action comic book scenarios. Right. He shows up in the middle of a fight scene and it's like, oh, cool, blimey, what am I doing here? This is crazy, isn't it? I forgot to mention, like Oscar Isaac is doing a, and it's per like I, I it's not a knock because obviously it's purposefully kind of a silly accent because he's not really British in the show. Mm-hmm. It's a it's an American doing a British voice. But how often do you still, see that? By the way, it's it's always it Australians very, and Brits doing an American accent. It is a very silly British voice that he's doing. Like it doesn't sound particularly. I, I actually I not wrote this, quite Jared Leto's Italian. I wrote this on Twitter, and a few British people wrote me to say actually this is more accurate than most Americans doing a British accent. So I guess for us, try to make your British voice sound very silly, and like oh shine your shoes, Gavnat. Like if you try <laughs> to do that, British people will be like dead on, spot on, mate. It sounds great. <laughs> very different from like the Top Boy, you know? Like that's the, the very different British accent. You ever watch Top Boy? No. Top Boy's a British crime drama. Drake uh, executive produces it now. Mm-hmm. It is set among the very hard, like in the projects of London, I believe East London. Uh, and they, it's just, it's just, it's two British accent. But you know, just like if you were doing an impression of like a guy from Augusta, Georgia and a guy from like Brooklyn is like very same country, very different ways of talking. Oh very yes. Different ways oh yes. <laughs> anyway, that's all I was saying. Um, so anyway, yeah, I to me, being like, oh, we're going to make Moon Knight and it's going to be this like wacky fish out of water comedy about this doofus who finds himself fighting this cult leader played by a very grizzled Ethan Hawke. I, 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 that I don't love. But if the show, if the show does at some point settle into more of a, like, it's going to be about Mark Spector, it's going to be about Moon Knight, and then this is an angle on it, you know, maybe, who knows? Well, let me ask you this. As a reader of uh, the comic books, did... Mark Spector suffer from this disassociative personality yes. disorder? This is a big part of Moon Knight comic books okay. is that he's got a lot of different personalities. And, the you know, like, that even the Moon Knight persona kind of plays with all that. Like, is he really possessed by an Egyptian god? Mm. Or is this just another personality? You know, like, the, the, they played around with that as well in, in the character's history. So, yes, and, and, and we always figured... The, the disassociative identity disorder stuff would be part of the show. Right. And even when the first trailers came out and you could hear Oscar Isaac doing that voice, I think everybody was like, oh, okay, that's one of the personalities. I think it's just the fact that this is the first episode and the entire episode is Stephen Grant that makes you feel like, well, if this is usually a pilot gives you a sense of what the show is like. So I know that Disney Plus pilots don't feel like they have to obey the rules, but this makes me feel like this is going to be this whole show. You know, but also I I find with uh, some of these shows, it's you got to eat your vegetables before you get your dessert or what, however you want to phrase it. So they're doing this world building. They're slow rolling 
yeah. what you're going to get with this character before you're going to get the bombast and the fun. Yeah. If you don't eat your meat, you can't have any pudding. That's how the, uh, that's how the expression Thank you, goes. Pink Floyd. <laughs> thank you, Roger Pink Waters. <laughs> you know, Pink Floyd, the author of that song. Yeah. But, you know, that being said, I like that we get to see, you know, I'm glad they gave us at least a little bit of Moon Knight in action by the end of the show. Very. Like, I, I, I would have been pissed if, like, we didn't get any. And also... Even yeah, though we it, yeah. it kept Oscar Isaac in this in this uh, kind of hapless, goofy character w- without too much of the comic book bombast and fun, mm-hmm. it, I, I enjoyed it. I felt like it was it, it kind of kept you guessing, especially if you aren't an immediate convert or um, a disciple of the comic. And again, I liked Ethan Hawke. So I thought this, from the layman's perspective, I thought it was a, a solid first episode as far as these uh, all, all these MCU Disney shows go. You know, being like not as a little less of a known commodity than yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know. Your, I just your think Loki, he should have asked people uh, more people if they were having a laugh. You having a laugh? That's a fun British phrase. Is he having a laugh? What are you taking a piss? Yeah, there you go. More, more of that. More of that. Please. I, I like that. I like that. So we'll 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 see how much of it stays with this goofy hapless character and the the accent that the Brits love, but Lon is having a, a little trouble swallowing. Uh, we'll see how much Moon Knight we get. Will F. Murray Abraham do a face reveal? Probably not, because he's just doing a voice performance here. Many questions to be answered still. Yeah, please. Your, your conclusion is longer than the review. Let's keep going. Tune in Summarize. for the next episode of <laughs> Moon Knight on Disney+. Yeah. Plus. Thank you. We also watched the new offering from Kenneth Branagh, uh, directed, starring Death on the Nile. I watched it on Hulu. It is there. Also on HBO Max. Also on HBO Max. HBO Max. Even though we've talked about it here, I still don't know exactly how those deals work or why it is. I've explained it to you several times. It's because this is a Fox movie. This was a Fox movie. So Fox, prior to the Disney sale, had a deal with uh, HBO or with, you know, Warner Media. Mm -hmm. After our films are theatrical, They'll go to HBO. Right. They got to keep to that deal. That deal's already made. But now that Fox sold to Disney, Disney's like, well, we got a streaming platform ourselves here. We don't want to not have these Fox movies. We made them. They're our company now. Uh-huh. So the agreement was that they'll go to both. That's that's how they're working it out. For a short time. For a time. Eventually, they'll stop being on Hulu. Once that deal expires... They will leave HBO forever and live permanently on Hulu because that's the Disney one and Disney owns Fox. There you have it. I'm I'm glad there's an agreement in place. There you go. Thank you. Death on the Nile. You know, I couldn't help but compare it to Murder on the Orient Express. And I think it compares... Films in the same series. Yeah, favorably to Murder on the Orient Express. You like this one more? I like this one more. I, I felt like... Murder on the Orient Express was just a bit more of a snooze. I thought this, and this is such a simple uh, aesthetic thing, but I, well, I you're found- you're a simple man. Uh, th- there you go, with simple pleasures. <laughs> uh, I, I thought Mur- Murder on the Orient Express, it, it just, you felt that it was claustrophobic and it was uh, it was dark and it was- Wait, 
Really? This movie, you felt like this movie had more of an expansive uh, no, Just feel. because it was, uh, some of the brighter locales in the wow. film. Wow. Well, that's interesting because this entire movie was filmed inside in England. Well, I mean, the... So no, I mean I I'm not I'm not saying this to, as a knock I'm not saying this to insult you mm-hmm. but I mean to me one of the big knocks on this movie would be and it's not it's not Kenny Branagh's fault mm-hmm. the plan what they they tried to shoot it in Egypt wasn't happening for a number of reasons the plan was to shoot it in Morocco mm-hmm. little little pandemic happened yes. threw a wrench into those plans. Getting all, you know, think about the number of actors, the the amount of talent that you've got on this movie. It's a huge ensemble cast. There's a lot of big names. The difficulty of getting them all in a bubble in Morocco for an extended period of time to make this movie, it just wasn't in the cards. Oh, if you want to know what it's like to be in a bubble, just ask Judd Apatow. Yeah, boy, there's a movie about it right now, but don't watch it. Huh. <laughs> uh, so they ended up shooting this all in England, where it was easy to get everybody, and and I get it, and I don't mean to come down on them too hard, but I do feel like it's very easy to tell a lot of the time that they never set foot in Egypt, and I, there are a few times where they really didn't have a good backup plan. Like, the one that I'll really point out, there's a scene early on where Poirot, the great detective played by Kenneth Branagh, <clears throat> sees an old friend, Book, Monsieur Book, oui. uh, flying a kite, on the pyramids of Giza. Mm-hmm. And the effect is, it's just, they just don't pull it off. It just, it does not look good at all. It, it didn't bother like me as much. It didn't bother me as, as as much as it's bothering you. It looked to me like Spy Kids. Like it was obvious that the actor is standing on a green step against a green backdrop. And then somebody has gone in and drawn the pyramid of Giza around him with a computer model. It does not look very good. The whole scene, there's a lot of scenes in this where it's actors up against a green screen and it just like doesn't match that well. And it just feels like, in some ways, it feels like the this technology is retro. Like, like the we've gotten very good at making it easier to do and cheaper, but mm-hmm. not necessarily to look better. And like, it's moving in the wrong direction in some ways. Right, right. So I was interested to hear you say that you felt like this was on a grander scale because... Some scenes, at least in Orient Express, were really shot on locations, and almost none of this movie. Uh, I like the, there was, at the base level, a brighter color scheme to this movie. I mean, that's true. That's true. And the the other thing I would point out that I was going to say is, I wrote this on Twitter and people, like, a few people asked me what I meant. Brana still shoots this like a movie. Like, obviously, there were technical limitations. He couldn't be outside. He couldn't be in the Nile. But he's still like, there's a lot of attention paid to like framing and moving the camera. Like there's a, obviously there's a shooting that happens in this movie. There's a murder scene. Mm-hmm. And he, there's long tracking shots where he's keeping you with certain characters and it's to obscure your view. Like you can't see what's happening back there because it's the answer to the mystery. But it's also to give you a sense of the timing. Like here's how long it took for this person to run all the way down to the other end of the ship and let those people know what was going on. And like, it gives you a sense of, here's how much time everybody would have had during the crime. So you could start to piece together who was where and, and you know, try to like keep up with the mystery. And it's very cleverly done the way he shoots it. And there's lots of good stuff like this in here. I thought it was a pretty good movie. Uh, I just, it just, it felt very obvious to me that it was like, it had this huge limitation of, they shot it during a pandemic and it was all in one room. 
And there's going to be an inherent claustrophobia to any of these movies because the murder on the Orient Express, you gotta stay on the Orient Express uh, for this whole whodunit. Almost every Poirot book, uh, no matter where it's at, even if it's not on a piece of transportation, you're kind of, everybody's kind of in one. Uh, Evil Under the Sun is another one where it's like, they're all at a resort together, but you gotta take a boat to get there. So everybody's kind of, kind of stuck on this island together. And then there were none, or yeah, there there are right. many of them. It's a genre thing. They got to, you know, knives out too. If you, if you could leave the house, you could get away, you know. Exactly, exactly. But this, th- there were some fun elements in this one as well. I like the, the personalized opening. Like we get to know uh, just a, a little tidbit about Hercule Poirot. And, we actually, uh, it's the mustache origins. We yes, do mustache the mustache origins. origin story. The mustache looks extra ridiculous in this movie, by the way. It looks like two mustaches put together. But you yeah, learn about which it. Is not, that's not, she describes Poirot's mustache as like military style. But David Suchet, it's just, it's just a very pointy mustache. But it's only one of them. He doesn't yes. do the full double. Brana's doing this like double flared mustache thing. Yeah. It's very... It doesn't even seem like hair would grow that way. Yeah, it's like he's he's entering one of those um, facial hair contests where you bring your beard or your right, mustache. It it's entering a I would love to see you. Hair. I would love to see you in a facial hair contest, Juan. Oh, boy. <laughs> I, I, I told you the South by Southwest story, haven't I? Have I don't think so. That? I don't think Do so. Do I have a beard story I haven't told in the show? So one time I was walking around South by Southwest just because covering it. I've never just been there. Just, I think I... I might have gone there once just to go. But on this occasion, I was working there. Sure. And uh, I'm on my way, and a guy walks up to me. He also has a very big beard. Mm. And he's like, love your beard. And he hands me this big bag. He's got a, like he's got like four or five of them. And he takes one out and he hands it to me. But it's it's like, it's not like a, when I say bag, you think like a bag. It's like a Comic-Con bag. You know, like one of those huge bags for collectibles. And oh, stuff. yeah, big swag bag, yeah. A big swag bag. And it's full of product. And he's like, we're giving these away. I work for a hair care beard company. If I see somebody with an awesome beard, I'm just supposed to give them one of these. Congratulations, love your beard. And he just kept walking. And I got back to my room and I was looking through everything. And it was a bunch of, it was like beard lotion and beard oil and fair shaving your beard and for the skin under your beard and beard shampoo and all sorts of beard grooming stuff I would never in a million years use. But what I thought was so funny about it was that it's like hyper mat like it was this, it was like the toxic masculinity beard care kit. Yeah. Like it was for like a dude who would be like terrified of having his facial hair smell like a flower or like any anything sweet or fragrant or pleasant. Like no. So all the all the scents were like tobacco or grease or charcoal or bourbon. Yeah, it's like firewood. Slow down, dudes. You know? Slow down, dudes. And it's like, I don't, do I want my beard to smell like firewood? Like, I don't know yeah. if that, like, I, I kind of like that there's been a campfire, you know, like that yeah. smell. But I don't know if I want to walk around all day with it. The way you described it, have you seen the uh, the commercial from uh, uh, Ben Shapiro's website that starting their new shaving uh, company? No, why Why would I watch this? Because it was mini viral for a minute, uh, just because it was- Oh, okay. No, I have not I have not checked in with the Daily Wire- Yeah, the Daily Wire. So apparently Dollar Shave- community. Uh, uh, let's continue this Death on the Nile tangent. Uh, apparently uh, Dollar Shave Club stopped advertising with them. And to get oh, back okay. at Woke Dollar Shave Club, they started their own <laughs> razors razor, for dudes. Yeah. And it, it's, uh, yeah, 
it's everything you expect. Pain razor, the razor that cuts you on purpose. That's what that's that's the vibe of this, where it's like like oh like well yeah there, it's there like a that, bar stool it's like bar stool sports. There was like a male makeup brand at South by that year too that was called like War Paint. It's like it's fucking makeup guys. Like let 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 dudes wear makeup. If yeah, they relax. Wear Be comfortable with your sexuality yeah, and just like fuck? live. Get over live. it. Okay. I was hoping for a bag full of kin euphorics. <laughs> you you Didn't love have... those mocktails. Oh my god. Yeah, so. Yeah, this this is an enjoyable romp. Uh, I'll tell you what, it, that, that's where I disagree with you. Like, that's what I'm hoping for. Mike, I really love those David Suchet ITV Poirots. You know what I'm talking about? The yes. British TV Poirot. Mm-hmm. They were on like the Masterpiece Theater collection when I was younger. Yes. It would be on PBS in this country. That's how I know this character. And I really like the David Suchet. He was also the very uh, stereotypical, unfortunate villain of Executive Decision folks. If you remember the Kurt Russell, Steven Seagal film, Executive Decision. Ah, okay. That's fucking rage. Imagine playing a Arab stereotypical terrorist in Executive Decision and you're fucking Poirot. I didn't even realize that was Poirot for like half the movie. Damn. Anyway, I really like his take, which is he's kind of, he's, uh, he's, it's a little bit funny. He's, he's eccentric. He's kind of out of his element. He's mm-hmm. this very kind of quirky character. And it is, he's he's very arrogant. And it is kind of this almost Columbo thing of he's silly and he seems out of place in high society. And so the murderers don't take him that seriously. And that's yes. what allows him to weasel his way in and figure out the answer. And I think that Suchet captures that so well. And I'm just not... Mm, Brana's playing it like this kind of bittersweet, melancholy, older gentleman. Yeah. And I and I was saying this online, and people who are better Poirot readers than me were like, actually, in the late stories, that does happen. And Agatha Christie kind of does color it that way at the very end. Like, towards the end of his life, Poirot got a little sad, a little melancholy. Mm. He was alone. Yes. He is pining a lost love yeah. in this yeah, movie. Yeah, and it's just, honestly, this one, it was just kind of a fucking bummer. Like, I just don't like it as much when he's sad. Like, I agree. It is, you know, it, it is a little bit lighthearted in the way. It's like all this, the celebrity, all these celebrities or all these, uh, you know, well-known actors and in this whodunit. But it doesn't, it's missing a... Uh, it, it, it's not able to laugh at itself. It doesn't have yeah, as not, many fun, cheeky feet. moments or exactly. little um, entendres or misunderstandings. It's it, it like once it sinks its teeth into that murder, it is like not. I mean, this is an ex, this is extreme, not quite, but almost humorless. You know, it's got its eyes on the prize. Everybody was making fun of like Gal Gadot and like, oh, enough champagne to fill the Nile. And like, I, it almost needs more of that. Like it's yeah. goofier and broader and it's so serious. And it's like, this is just a mystery. Like this isn't Belfast. It doesn't really need to be weighty like this. Exactly. And, and honestly, it's not, Belfast is funnier. Belfast is a funnier movie. I, yeah, I don't doubt it. And and it's not just. Did you not watch Belfast at all? You still haven't seen. Belfast? I told you there are two Oscar noms that yeah, I haven't now seen: we're weeks Coda out. and Belfast. Been, oh, all right. Well, listen. All right. Not so. everybody cares about the cinema. I guess that's okay. Oh wow, that, that one strikes <laughs> deep. That that one strikes deep. One. Let's move on. I do want to talk about Severance before we get out of here. Any any final thoughts on Nile? Nile. Yeah, I think it could use it? a little bit more humor. Um, and it is just wealthy people's folly. You know, 
So what? Like, why can't we enjoy like taking down? <laughs> you were hoping. Why wasn't there a Cockney boot black on this Nile tour? But like, when you're when you're Where in this Oscar kind of. Where was Oscar Isaac? Show on your shoes, governor. I mean, maybe maybe show like. Pity farthing a tuppence. I wouldn't mind a little class warfare in there, <laughs> but uh, it it was enjoyable enough. A two-hour trifle. It's available on. They're not rich. It's available on HBO Max and on Hulu. And finally, we want to do. This is going to be spoilers dead ahead. We're going to talk freely about the season. Yeah, we're just yeah about the the season so far. uh, Severance. We've watched eight, the ninth and final episode of this season of Severance. Probably will be going up within a day or two of you hearing this podcast. Apple TV Plus, Apple TV Plus, Ben Stiller. So we're going to talk about the first eight episodes out of nine. So if you don't want to hear that, turn off Binge Boys now. So I'm all caught up. I'm. Well, yeah, otherwise I'm going to spoil you. That would be no. no, I'm enjoying the heck out of it. And I did think there was a moment there between episodes like three and four where it felt like the show was treading water just a little bit. And it has created several loose ends that has not tied up quite as of yet. Well, it's the, we haven't even had the finale. And yeah. Probably, so, I'm imagining there's more seasons to come. I don't think we're going to resolve everything in this one final right. episode. I think this is the kickoff of a larger sci-fi or fantasy or dark fantasy world. Sure. But, yeah, I I really love what the show has been doing just as far as it's really masterfully done reveals and cliffhangers where you're like, oh my goodness. I wanted to revisit because when it first came out, I think I was approaching it, I thought it was going to be more of a commentary, more satirical, more about like working and office life. And now I've come to realize like, oh no, it's a a classic Lost style puzzle box. It's Mm -hmm. It's just a very twisty, mind bendy, like they've got this, tantalizing sort of sci-fi premise and they're just using it to royal, you know, spin us up into this like crazy, tangled, complicated world building sort of mystery. And they're, they're really doing amazing at it. Like it's, I've rarely been so caught up in a show and I feel like they do a really good job of not really that much has to happen in the world of the show. They're, they're so close to the chest. They're so careful about any kind of reveal that even a little thing feels massively monumental. And the, I'll, I'll give you a few examples. Mm-hmm. The opening of the most recent episode, of episode eight, where we finally see Irving, John Turturro's character, yes. outside. It's the first time we've seen his Audi. Yep. And all we see, it's, a very, it's, it's not very revealing. He wake. He gets back from work. He makes a pot of coffee. He stays up all night, which explains why Irving is always sleepy in the show mm-hmm. because his innie is tired all the time and gets in trouble for falling asleep. And uh, so he stays up all night and he paints over and over again these images of this black hallway leading to a mysterious elevator going down. Mm-hmm. And he clearly doesn't understand why he's doing it. But... We also get a shot of the black paint coming out, which explains the oil that he sees in his dreams when he's in the office. And later in the episode, we see that black hallway that leads below the severed floor to whatever's going on. They say that, uh, I forget her the character's name, Miss 
Sherry, Miss, who's the, you know, the Patricia HR. Patricia Arquette or, oh. No, 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 no. Mark's wife. Yes. You know who I'm talking about. Yeah, folks. I do know who we you're see, talking about. We see her being led down that hallway. Miss Casey, Miss Casey. Miss Casey. We see her being led down that hallway towards that elevator, which means, one, there's another floor where severed people don't go, where mm-hmm. they're either, like, doing some kind of basic work on these people or fabricating people or cloning people or something. And that Irving has been down there, which is a huge reveal because Irving has an Audi. Ms. Casey, we don't know if she ever goes outside of the Lumen office, but Irving has a life. Because in the outside world, she is dead. Because Mark's right. wife- The world thinks that she's we, dead. She was so revealed as Mark's she, wife, yeah. And she tells Mark in that episode, in episode seven, I believe, maybe eight, she tells him she's been alive for like a hundred hours. She's only been conscious for sessions on the severed floor. She doesn't know the world outside. Mm-hmm. So she's only been in that. And we heard in an earlier episode too, Dylan mentioned there's a floor. They say there's a floor where they, they, they're only innies. They never go out. They, you know, and the, so now we've got confirmation that's true. But the fact that Irving was there and is now an Audi really radically real. Like, it, I, I think it, it really opens up the idea that we were sort of hinting at in the earlier episode. You remember when uh, Mark's sister and she meets that senator's wife? Yes. And then she meets her again. Yeah, when they're at the birthing retreat. Right. They're at the birthing cabin at first, and then she sees her again at, like, the park or something. Yeah. And the woman doesn't remember her. And it's mm-hmm. obviously like she'd been... It was a set. She had a severed procedure, and she was a different version of her now. Mm-hmm. And so we saw that out in the real world. Yes. And now I think we've got indications that whatever is really going on at Lumen, severing is not designed for the workplace. It's yeah. It's human testing. They're testing something that's got an outside world application. That it's either replacing people or allowing people to do this in their lives or to do this to other people in their lives. We don't, we don't have those yeah, answers yet. Uh, absolutely. And you know what else? Like th- there's so many interesting nuggets about this show because like there's the dystopian future stuff. There's still, even though it's less so than you were saying, I think there's absolutely commentary about the modern workplace. Uh, well, sure. What, I mean, that's what, like the setting. And, and- uh, yes, but beyond the setting, like the way they use these terms, because I don't know if you've ever worked in a, in a button down, put on your uh, button down I, shirt in Slack's of office before. I- but like th- there are foreboding things that you don't want to have to deal with when you get called to like when you have to go have a sit down, when you have to do these things. Like the the punitive verbiage of the workplace, the foreboding that it gets in you, like this is that on steroids. They're also doing this thing where everything is everything is like infantilized. Like they're they're constantly treating these these employees like kids. You know, it's like yes. even their computers look like toys and like a lot of the the stuff that you and you know the prizes are the like reward finger traps and like okay we're gonna have a music dance party and it's stuff you would do with preschoolers and that that runs through the whole show is like well they're you know they even call it like they're being born when they first become an innie and you have your orientation mm-hmm. that's like you're the day you were born and you're so young you know because you haven't been alive for that long um so I I do it is obviously it is commentary on working for a big company and that that's how 
any job you have, you're sort of treated like a child who needs to be told what to do. Absolutely. And there's this cloying kind of just like, I'm smiling. I hate you, but I'm smiling as I'm talking to you. What I would say is, I think on almost every level, it's bigger, like they're, those things aren't just true of work, they're true of life. And I, I, I sure. to me, I think of like, it's, it's like the office is the microcosm that they've chosen. And it makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons, but I really think the show is about the existential horror of being alive more than oh, it is about being at work. Absolutely. And, and it's about how our life is defined by, we're like, we can't, we have to work to live. We're born, we don't have a choice. Yes. You're put into this world and then you're told in order to go on existing, oh, here's what you've got to do. Lift that, go there, do that. You know, it's like, uh, oh, 100%. it's about that. It's, a, I think it's on about a the self. Level. It's about the self and what is the self and how many how many different yeah. versions of our own self are there? Is it, are we the same person when we're at work that when we are um, with our friends, than when we are with our parents, than when we are with uh, you know go on and on and on? Uh, are about the different uh, front-facing scenarios we might experience in life. But also, I I, I really love the stuff there, uh, just the mythos around the founder as well. That bonkers Keir Keir Egan Keir Egan. Keir Egan, the, the Egan yes. family owns Lumen, yes. but Keir is the founder who He's they worship as like a god. like an L. Ron Hubbard type character. A little bit. Well, here's, I assumed it was going to be a purely sci-fi explanation. Like, right. it's cloning, they mm -hmm. found a way to resurrect people, it's consciousness in a computer, whatever. And there's obviously something to it because... Like the board, you know, the quote unquote, like the yes. mystery of who, who or what is Who's the board. on the board, this, that woman who communicates on their behalf. Yeah. Right. There's a voice and a speaker that sounds kind of otherworldly that runs the company. And it's like, is it Keir's mind in a computer? Is mm -hmm. it a monster? Is it an alien? Is it just a person like a David Lynch thing behind an intercom? You know, yeah. who knows? Um, at first I assumed it would be purely sci-fi. Like, oh, that's Keir and his mind is alive in a machine or something. But now... There's a lot of imagery that I think is obviously religious, but mm -hmm. I would almost say satanic or infernal. Goats, they found they found a room where goats are being bred. Yes. Uh, obviously the black goo, black ink that Irving sees in his mind. Those paintings of Kier that they have in optics yeah. and design, Christopher Walken, where they're like, creepy and sort of otherworldly and they're all even the upbeat ones are like there's a darkness and they're mm -hmm. they're sort of modeled on like goya paintings like yeah. they kind of have this like surreality and not not in a good way mm -hmm. and and so I, I part of me is like oh it's some here he was like a cult leader it's some kind of lovecraftian or satanic explanation behind some of this which would also i mean patricia arquette has like a shrine to him set yes. up in her house, it almost looks kind of hereditary, like like. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a that's an aesthetic they've started to inject in some of this stuff. Yeah, and that's I really am interested in that aspect, that bonkers waffle uh, waffle party. Right, and then that's what I was going to say is to the biggest clue so far that it's not just sci-fi. There's something like darkly spiritual about it. Yes, was the the waffle party, which you, at first it seems like is just going to be eat waffles in Kier's old bedroom, but then these exotic dancers in animal masks show up and it becomes like more like a sex cult. Thing. Yes. And th so there are just like so many 
it's lining up so many fascinating elements to unpack here. And again, it's a lot of stuff. I would, I would be, uh, it would be hard pressed to get it all out of the way. It looks like, yeah, I agree. It's set up for multiple seasons. Oh, for I, there's no doubt in my mind. Like there's no fucking way they can Abrams themselves out of this in one episode. Yeah. <laughs> or absolutely. I guess Lindelof themselves out of it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and again, every episode lately, it just, Wow, like you're you're left in the with a stunning moment like, oh man. It's their patience, their fucking patience, their their phenomenal mm-hmm. pain. Like the to, to hold back so much, leave us with no real answers. You can do little tiny things. Like there's at the very end, this most recent episode ends in a cliffhanger, as, as they almost all have recently. And it's like they're about to be woken up, their innies are about to wake up in the outside severed world. And we get a couple quick shots of where they all are at that moment. And we get just one shot of Heli. And she's obviously at the fancy party at the Lumen corporate headquarters. Mm, mm-hmm. I don't know if you go by very fast. She's in a gown. Oh, I could tell, I could tell that she was, yeah, in an, like yeah, an she's upscale at a, she's event. She's at that part. She's obviously at that gala that they're holding there that nobody else. She's the only character that would be there uh, that we know. Because mm-hmm. Patricia Arquette was going to go, but then she got fired. Right, right. So, I mean, it's just like that. Like, that feels like huge. Like, oh, it's confirmation of what we've sort of, were first hinted at in, like, the second episode. That, like, she's somebody important within Lumen who's taking this job for some reason that we don't know about yet. Because, you know, like, I believe it was Patricia Arquette who said uh, to her Audi, oh, it's so great that you're doing this. We're so lucky to have you here. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, that she's talking to her like she's a bigwig. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. And so she's at that party now. So we know that Heli's that and that's why her Audi would refuse to quit. Even she's like, I'm gonna kill myself, and her Audi's still like, no, go back. Because she's a true believer like Patricia Arquette. Oh yeah. And just so many fascinating wrinkles here. I do I, I do wonder, like, you know what? There would be a little more security if this uh was real if uh you know, if this was a real thing. On some level, I feel like there's something we don't know about the entire world of severance as it's now been presented. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's something up with the Audi world. Like, the out, aside from just the severance technology existing, something is very off about the world in which Mark lives, even when he's not at work. Yeah, it's a weird sanitized version of, there's the something we weird. People like the, the, he was at that dinner party, and he was like, you know, people during World War One wouldn't have called it World War One because World War Two wouldn't have happened yet. They called it the Great War, and everybody at the table, which is supposed to be the setting, everything cues us to be like these are sophisticated, educated people having mm-hmm. a dinner party. But then all of them were like, oh, my God, I never thought of that. What a great point. You're like, wait a minute. Why is everyone stupid? And then Mark's brother-in-law wrote that whole book. And obviously, he's supposed to be kind of a goofy dumbbell character. Yes, new agey. But the book is, but the book is crazy. It's not yes. just like this guy's a goofball. It's fucking crazy. When they read it at work, it's crazy. And so it's like, wait a minute. And like birthing cab like why are people going to birthing cabins in this world that's not a thing people do in our world yeah it's it's a little bit unusual there's layer upon layer upon layer of that and here's here's one more thing and i'll throw this out and i I know this is a lot to throw at you Mm -hmm. if you go on apple books okay they've published a fake 
expose, I'm using finger quotes, uh -huh. that is written from in the world of severance that's like a lumen expose. Oh. And it includes a testimonial from a severed person. And they are explaining to you some crazy conspiracy. Like they think the numbers that they're mining or they're refining on their computer is linking up to real world acts of terrorism. It's got nothing to do with what's happening on the show. But it seems to imply that everybody who works on a severed floor at Lumen has some kind of mystery that they're working on. Like aside from their work they're being introduced some kind of mystery to solve or some kind of conspiracy mm. to get obsessed with. And so I think that it's possible that everything we're seeing is part of some kind of elaborate experiment yeah. or- Oh yeah, we don't know what those numbers are yet. We, uh, there's, right. No, I agree that there's, there's much to be unpacked here. And so much of it is concerned with observing how different pieces of information or different people, or different settings will change your mood. And it all comes together, by the way, because the the unusual, these little idiosyncrasies that you're pointing out, it creates this whole, like the the, the sanitized world, the behaviors of the human beings. Uh, it's like everything is just off. It's done. The show does a nice job in creating this like funhouse mirror of life. That it's like, oh, it's clearly not here, but it's not. Totally not here. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, you know what? If you've come this far, enjoy enjoy the finale, which is maybe tomorrow, or maybe you've already seen it. I don't know when you're listening to this. That's the stuff we've come to talk about today. Thank you for listening. Hoot hoot, Owl Nation. Where my Gahooligans at? Thanks, Starburns Audio. Appreciate you having us. Thank you, Travis Reeves, for producing this program. Thank you, Jason K, for the opening music. Lon, uh, tell them whatever you feel like. Uh, find me on Twitter at L-O-N-S. That's the best place to do it. Uh, and you can also subscribe to my newsletter, inside.com slash streaming. Uh, that's where we update, you know, five days a week. It's totally free, and you can read all of this news before I tell it to you again on the podcast. Wow, free. The price is right. And you can find me at Hal Rutnick on Twitter and Instagram. Join me, won't you? Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye now. Bitch boys, bitch boys. Bitch boys, bitch boys. <laughs>